Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, you're at the right place. This is Airlines Confidential, and I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us, and I'm joined, as always, by Chris Chimes. Hello, Chris. Hey, Ben, and hey, listeners. Lots to talk about this week again. And then we're going to talk to Jordan Kahlo, actually, who leads business development at the busy BWI Marshall Airport. He's going to provide some good insight I think our listeners will enjoy. But first, some news. And Ben, we start with three words. Doug Parker retires. Yes, that was big news. And Doug and I started at American Airlines back in 1986. And about the same week, I think, both in the finance department. And then he and I went to Northwest together. Um, And then at that point, we went in different directions, but we've stayed friends and competitors through that time. Doug's had a spectacular career, I think. Some people have called him the godfather of consolidation, somewhat in a pejorative way, but I actually think that should be considered a compliment. Scale in this business, as you know, Chris, is important. You buy more airplanes, you get them for a lower price, you operate more flights at an airport, you get better rates from the airport and get higher share of the business traffic, right? And so- you know, scale is a big thing in this industry. And Doug realized that early in his career. And when he was at America West, he learned the the way that low-cost airlines operate. When he got together with U.S. Airways, they had some challenges merging the pilot group. So when he decided they needed to get even bigger and ultimately merge with America, he worked with the unions first. I think in part because of what he learned with the difficulty in getting the Airways and America West pilots together. So I think he's a guy who's recognized scale, but has learned a lot in his time and really helped, you know, make things better for the airlines that he's been part of. And I think, Chris, that the aviation world is going to be really kind to Doug as he steps down from day to day in terms of thinking of his legacy in the industry. And I think they should be. I I agree with that, Ben. I mean, it's been years since I've dealt with Doug, but he always has treated people with respect. That's been his nature, um, whether it be with unions or with employees or with executives. My sense in in watching him has always been one of, of respect and listening and uh, trying to connect with people. So certainly at a personal level and on a management style level, I think he was the right guy in a number of situations, saving the old America West, uh, merging with U.S. Airways, getting the merger done with American Airlines eventually, and and leading a very complicated integration. I mean, I think people needed uh, a new perspective uh, as that airline was merging with U.S. Airways. So I agree. I think people are going to be kind to him the last couple of years, but the operation hasn't always been uh, great and people have been very critical, but um, he's certainly added his flair to the industry and added his mark to the industry over the last couple of decades. So I wish him well on a personal level as well. I agree with you. And one of the reasons I think he'll be treated really well is he's always been such a good guy. People like working with him, people like working for him, and he's always been straightforward, honest, a lot of integrity, and it's that open nature and very almost jovial sort of way he has about going about his day-to-day that make people want to see him succeed. And I think that's one of the reasons that people might, in a look-back way, 
Again, he's going to stay the chairman of American Airlines, so he's still very involved, right? But in looking back on sort of a career, I think they will undersell some of the operational challenges or maybe even stock price challenges that he had. And they'll say, but he was such a good guy and ultimately read the industry right in terms of what the industry needed to get profitable again. That's absolutely right. I mean, again, on a personal level, how he treats people just matters a lot. And um, I have my own personal interactions with him that he was always very respectful. I was on the, you know, while U.S. Airways name was intact through the America West merger, it was very clear from the beginning that the America West management team was going to be leading the new enterprise. And you know, he told all the U.S. Airways executives at the time, the way our employment agreements were written in a merger, if we were offered a new job in the new enterprise, we would have the chance to join the company. But if we turned down the offer, it greatly impacted our severance. And he said, look, you guys have been through a lot, through two rounds of bankruptcy and some really tough times. If you want to go do something else, tell me. So I don't offer you a job you turn down. You you, you deserve the severance you've earned through a couple of pretty backbreaking years. And that was really well received by the old US Airways management team because he could have offered us all jobs that he knew we didn't want. And we turn them down and get short change on severance. So those kinds of things, again, on a personal level, you remember. Absolutely. And I remember Doug early in his career as very much a work hard, play hard kind of guy where he'd be working late night in the offices, but then still have time to go out afterwards and have some fun. And that sort of fun loving side of Doug while he became more and more successful, I think that translated itself into really caring about the way he treated people. And the story you just told is an example of that, I think. And then, Ben, and another sign that the industry is starting to reclaim some of its pricing power, I'm sure you saw Delta Airlines announce that they're changing the rules for their basic economy fares. The fare can now be canceled and refunded, albeit with a penalty that might exceed the actual fare. But most notably for flyers, these bargain fares will no longer earn frequent flyer miles or points. Ben, I know you've got a basement full of board games, so let's get out the Ouija board. And where do you think this is going to go? Well, Chris, I think this is great, actually, in terms of Delta sort of going full tilt on what basic economy really means. You may remember, Chris, back in the 1990s at U.S. Airways, when at one point we made a decision to change the frequent flyer rights of the lowest value tickets we had. And I think I was quoted in the paper saying something like, loyalty is not only how often you fly, but how much you pay. And I was then awarded an award that I'm sure you remember as a hole of the year by a group of customers, right? The cockroaches. And, yes, the cockroaches. So. Yes, the cockroaches. That's right. And they called themselves the cockroaches, those customers, because they said that's how Airways treated them, right? That's why they picked that name. But in practice, what we did was exactly what Delta's just done. Chris, when I look at my Ouija board, I believe that this aspect of basic economy is going to get matched. You know, when Delta launched basic economy fares, that idea was matched at American and United relatively quickly, but not with the exact same features. What Delta took away from its basic economy customers is a little different than what United took away and what American took away. But this idea of how the lowest priced tickets participate in the loyalty program I think makes sense for all three of the big airlines. So I'd be surprised if American and United don't end up matching this aspect of the basic economy takeaways, meaning that basic economy means you really don't participate in the frequent fire program. Well, there are examples in other parts of travel and in other sectors with loyalty programs that parallel this to some degree. I mean, with certain hotel chains, if you 
book a hotel outside of the direct channel, you may not earn hotel points, or you book with a deeply discounted rate. There are airline employee rates and travel industry rates that aren't eligible for points. If you book on certain websites, if you book on Costco.com and book a rental car, you don't earn freaking flyer miles. So there are examples here. And again, the frequent flyer groupies might get excited about this, but this might be new in the airline sector, but it's not new with regard to loyalty programs. Well, and I've said before, Chris, and I'll say it again now, I believe that airlines are going to try to find ways to reward the less frequent traveler through their loyalty programs. That doesn't mean give them free trips for fewer flights or things like that, but find ways that the loyalty program can be relevant for someone who doesn't travel quite as often. The unfortunate reality of frequent fire programs in the U.S. today is that a relatively small percentage of the customers reach sort of the higher tier levels within the programs. And on any given flight on American United or Delta, usually only about a third of the people are even involved in the program. And most of those aren't at a high tier level. So finding a way to make programs useful, meaningful, and relevant for a less frequent traveler is one way that airlines can make these programs more valuable over time. And this change that Delta has made, I believe, helps move in a direction that'll encourage them to want to do that. Well, a quick pause and a thank to our sponsors, including the finance and banking firm of Seabury Capital Group. Their widely respected team has superior industry knowledge in aviation, aerospace and defense, financial services and technology, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. And TA Connections procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients in aviation and cruise and they make travel arrangements easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Finally, Ben, as we wrap up the news, we keep rooting for Boeing, but they keep taking delays and going back to the gate American announced the suspension or cancellation of some international routes in 2022, including service to several European destinations. They specifically cited 787 production and delivery delays as the cause. Then Boeing announced a new jet production chief, Elizabeth Lund, who led the supply chain function for Boeing and is moving into a bigger role as the executive in charge of commercial airplane production. Only the second woman to hold that role for Boeing. So what do you think, Ben? A coincidence? More importantly, if you're the Boeing CEO, Dave Calhoun, what do you tell Elizabeth Lund to go do first? Well, that's a great question, Chris. I don't know if it's totally a coincidence, but obviously, if you think about all the problems that Boeing has had over the last couple of years, they all relate to jet production. So I actually think this appointment is probably more than just the current delays on the 787, although that may be the straw that, you know, broke the camel's back, as they say, in terms of wanting to put someone new in charge of this. If I were Dave Calhoun, I would want Elizabeth Lund to do two really big things. One, I'd want assurance that Boeing doesn't let an airplane out of its factory that everybody believes is built to the standards Boeing expects and is going to be a safe airplane. And so one thing that sort of fixes the rush them out quickly, like they had with the 737 MAX. And the second thing I would say is let's be really transparent with our customers. Let's talk to them about what's going on. And Americans shouldn't be in the position of in relatively short notice canceling flights that were either selling or they had announced would be selling soon because they learned that, you know, a 787 isn't going to show up on time. So I think ensuring that the production lines 
work efficiently, but only put out planes that are going to do what Boeing wants them to do and that customers know exactly what's going on with their order streams in time enough to make decisions about their schedule, not certainly not having to cancel flights that have been booked and things like that. If Elizabeth Lund can do those two things, I think that'll go a long way toward getting Boeing completely out of the troubles and problems they've had over the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm assuming somebody is regularly talking to their big customers. Um, I don't think she needs to touch base with every one of their large customers right now. Um, I think they just want those assurances you just laid out. But certainly getting in front of key customers and articulating what's going to change under her watch is, is going to be critical. You, you're going to have to do that more with one-on-one conversations, but maybe some big picture kinds of opportunities as well. So coming up, Jordan Kahlo from BWI Airport, which is brought to you in part with the support of Pratt & Whitney, which is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. We're excited to be joined today with Jordan Kahlo, the Director of Air Service Development at Baltimore Washington International Airport. Jordan, we're talking to you in your role at BWI, but tell our listeners both about your current role, but also your much broader career in the airline space. Well, thanks, Ben. Certainly great to be here on Airlines Confidential. I've been a listener for, for quite a while from the Seth days. So it's, uh, it's great to be able to talk to you about BWI Marshall. But yeah, I think you know where I started in the airline industry. I guess a little before that, I was uh, in the United States Air Force. Uh, unfortunately, with my vision, they wouldn't get me near, near airplanes, so I had to quit. But it was the late 90s. All you did was go to business school and, and you'd be rich. So uh, I wrote some essays about trying to fix the airline industry. And sooner or later, I ended up at U.S. Airways out of business school. So because I had my MBA, I was in the finance department. Two weeks after I started, we went into Chapter 11. So that was good fun. Since I'm much more of a a map guy than I am a plane guy, which I know is a little bit weird for Airlines Confidential here, I love to put pins on maps and, and do things geographically. So as soon as I could, I tried to get out of the finance department and move over into network planning. Um, And so I did that in uh, early 2003. And while I was in network planning, I was the guy who received pitches from airports, like I give now, about trying to add service to new destinations. So in international planning at U.S. Airways, that mainly meant Europe and the Caribbean. So it was a really tough job having to go visit all these places in Europe and the Caribbean and get wined and dined while they tried to get me to, to add new flights. But first, we were there for Chapter 11, and then came Chapter 22. And after the merger was announced with America West, my job, like everybody's job at U.S. Airways, was moving to Phoenix. So I found another job at a little airline consulting firm called Seabury Airline Planning Group, Seabury APG, which is a sister company of your current sponsor there. And I did that for a couple of years, helping out airports and airlines around the world. APG also had a sister company that eventually became DO that made online aviation data products. And I moved over and became head of sales and support for DO uh, and did that for about a decade. So we grew that business and it was sold. And if you see Cerium now, that is uh, the successor company of what we grew there, along with a bunch of other pieces. So that was good fun. And uh, I'm still in the D.C. area and eventually found a job at BWI Marshall Airport where I am now doing air service development. So it's interesting to be on the airport side of the pitches that I used to get when I was at U.S. Airways. I think the good part about that is it means I understand what the airlines are looking for since I used to be one, but I am the guy that helps the airlines learn what they don't know about the airport from getting things in the data. Well, you know, I don't mind saying that Sirium is a friend of the show and they um, encourage us to use their data when it can help us 
inform our listeners of things going on. So it's great to know that you were part of that whole development. And what you didn't say, Jordan, is that the hardest part of your job at U.S. Airways was having to work for Barry Biffle, right? (laughs) Yeah, he hired me. I remember a good conversation we had in the interview about future service to Cuba. We went on a trip or two together, but uh, he got he got swapped up and shipped to another department pretty quickly. So I uh, didn't have to work for him too long. <laughs> no, but we learned a lot. He's certainly a creative guy way back when. And you can see as he moved up through the ranks at Spirit and Frontier, all the creativity coming out to make those companies better and better. So, Jordan, just about any discussion we have involves some mention or analysis related to COVID and its impact on the industry. So can you first set the table for us about how BWI has been impacted over these past two years, service levels and passengers, any staffing layoffs, those kinds of things? Yeah, well, BWI uh, certainly was hit hard by COVID, just like everybody else. We actually set a new passenger record for a 12-month period in February 2020 at $27.1 million. Uh, and then the bottom fell out in March. And in April 2020, we were down 96% from uh, the year before. So that made a lot of changes have to happen at the airport. I guess I'm going to address the staffing part first. Just as a quick background, when folks go through the airport, most of the people that they see working at the airport don't actually work for the airport themselves. So here at uh, BWI Marshall, we're part of the Maryland Aviation Administration. We're a state-run airport, which is pretty unique in the industry, but we have about 350, 400 people that work for the airport itself. So most of the people that you see in the airport work for the airlines. For smaller airlines, the people that you actually see wearing the uniforms are part of ground handling systems and they're contracted out. But the concessions workers all work for the concessions themselves. And we have a large cleaning crew here as well. I realize now the company is called Chimes and I always spell it wrong because I spell it like your last name, Chris. There you go. But there's no A in there. So all these people that you see working in the airport uh, don't actually work for the airport. So luckily for me, being an employee of the state of Maryland, uh, there weren't actually very many layoffs. There were no layoffs among the airport workers themselves. But among the concessionaires and the ground handlers and the folks whose day-to-day job decreased uh, immensely, and the demand went way, way down, they, of course, did have to furlough or lay off people. Um, and of course, the airlines had all kinds of incentive programs for folks to leave. So we saw people leave the airlines as well. I guess we also have a new big Amazon facility that opened before the pandemic here at BWI Marshall. And that facility hires lots and lots of people with good wages. So a lot of people were uh, taking jobs at the Amazon facility as well among the labor pool that we have here. So has that impacted the ramp up back to full staffing and full operations, you think? I guess let me talk about how the passengers came back, and then we can go back and talk about the staffing for that. But I thought I'd give that little background first. So as I said, in April 2020, traffic was down 96%. Uh, it started recovering slowly from about down 70% by May and June to through the winter there, it was down in the 60s. And by February, it was up to down 58%. But then in March, things started to take off when the vaccines started to get into people's arms. Um, So since May, we've been down kind of from the high 20% and we're progressing so that we're down in the low 20% uh, in our most recently available data. I think we're good through September at this point with the official airport stats. But our seats are still down uh, in the 20% for the rest of this year. So we expect that our passengers can't be down much higher than that or much lower than that, depending on how you look at it. Then going back to the staffing. So as people were ramping back up their travel and the airport was opening up more and more and concessions had to open up more and more in order to meet the demand, there were some definite issues with getting people hired. So a lot of the concessionaires that weren't opening as quickly weren't doing so because they didn't have customers. It was more that they couldn't get the help or that the customers were coming at certain times of the day and they really only needed to be staffed for a couple hours. So it didn't make sense for them to um, staff right up. But those were all things we were seeing kind of last winter um, and in the spring. But when traffic started coming back in the summer, we haven't seen too many problems with concessions and everyone is pretty much back open to normal levels. 
Well, that's really good to hear. How was your Thanksgiving? And the what? How are you thinking about you know the December holidays in terms of volumes? And is the airport ready? And do you think your airlines are ready? Yeah, we don't have official stats for Thanksgiving yet. Um, more immediately, we get numbers from the TSA, so that measures the people that go through security. So that's the local departing passengers, not the total passengers. But before Thanksgiving, our our record was just under. 29,000 passengers in a day, but we crushed that on the Wednesday of Thanksgiving, uh, going over 31,000. Um, and on the Sunday of Thanksgiving, we were within 20 passengers of the record we had set a few days before. But those numbers are still 20% below what we had in, in 2019. We have a little bit higher percentage of capacity returning for the holidays. Um, all the airlines have been saying for a while now that their bookings are strong, so we expect Christmas and New Year's to be very strong. It's kind of interesting in the last couple of weeks with the Omicron news coming out, we've been hearing airlines say that uh, that they're not seeing any effects for that. So that's encouraging. In fact, I was at a, a meeting where Alaska was speaking a couple of days ago and they had a single day sale earlier this week and they set a single day sale record for the history of Alaska Airlines. So just further evidence that uh, things are still looking good. Well, Jordan, along with building back traffic, you've also had some success during the pandemic. I think you recruited at least one new international carrier. You got BA back uh, at the airport and Southwest put in a new maintenance facility. How did you kind of set priorities and manage through both stabilizing traffic at the airport, but uh, getting new business in the door? Yeah, I have to say at the beginning of the pandemic, it was certainly crazy trying to figure out what carriers were going to do. Um, we lost a lot of routes and uh, things were closed temporarily at the beginning there, uh, but we stayed in touch with all the airlines uh, to make sure that they knew we were here and we keep them updated on the, the traffic coming back. As the Leisure Airport, among three airports in the Washington region, we tended to recover a little more quickly, so that's good. I guess also another thing that makes us attractive to the airlines and when they're serving the Washington region is that we strive to keep our costs low for the airlines so that it doesn't cost them much to operate. Um, and that makes us very attractive to the airlines. So during the pandemic, one of the measures of, of airline costs at an airport is cost per employment, how much each airline pays to put one passenger on a plane. And we've seen that CPE measure skyrocket at most airports around the country, especially bigger airports. I mean, they have the same cost to operate the airport, but the employments are way down. So the denominator in C over E uh, makes the number get much bigger. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to keep our costs as low as possible. So uh, we did defer some of the fees that the airlines had to pay. And they were paying it later, but that helped them out through the cash crunch that they had when the pandemic first started. And then airports all across the country got money from the CARES Act. Um, a lot of those airports decided to use that money in different ways. We decided to apply it to the operation so that the costs would stay low. And so that kept us attractive to the airlines around the world. Our CPE ended up going up a couple dollars from like nine and a half to twelve and a half. But other airports, their CPEs tripled or quadrupled. So when a carrier is deciding where to come, uh, that certainly factors in. We actually just reconciled the costs for our first half of 21. We do reconciliations every six months with the airlines. We estimate the costs that they pay going forward. And then once that time period passes, we reconcile with them uh, and settle up. And we actually are giving carriers money back for the first half of 2021. So we're proud of that. So yeah, so we did get many new routes during the period there. Um, Southwest, uh, we know they did an aggressive opening of new routes across the country. I think it was 18 new stations that they ended up with. Now we're Southwest's biggest airport on the East Coast. So every time one of those new airports popped up, that's within a uh, range of us here where they are attending to do more short haul flying. Um, we got new service. So places like Miami, Chicago, O'Hare that they added for the business traveler, uh, but also leisure places like Sarasota, Savannah, Destin, Myrtle Beach, we got new service to there. They've also added Jackson, Mississippi, and Syracuse, New York, just a few weeks ago. That's for Ben, the Syracuse part, I guess. 
Well, thanks for remembering that, Jordan. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, you said some real interesting things there and very creative of you guys to find ways to keep your costs low when the volumes weren't there. And I'm guessing that at least some of that comes from the fact that you worked on the airline planning side, as you told us at the beginning of the show, and you've heard lots of pitches from airports. And I'm sure on that side, you were already saying, get your cost down, get your cost down. So how does knowledge of both sides of this relationship now help you in your current role? Like you said, I can advocate kind of what the airlines want in order to make the airport more attractive for them. So when we were happy to get, um, I think we got $87 million of CARES Act money, uh, which is actually smaller than other airports of our size. Um, some people saying, hey, let's pay down our debt right away. Let's pay off the bonds we owe and kind of set that to zero. But I was certainly advocating for keeping the cost down and keeping the CPEs what they were as close as we could. So my voice was heard and that eventually happened. Um, the other two rounds of money that we have are, are going to those other things at this point. Um, but we're, we're trying to keep things down. I mean, we also have an incentive program that waives fees for carriers that add new routes. So we're excited to get some new routes because of that as well. We'll be back in a minute with our great talk with Jordan Kahlo. But remember that Clear makes travel safer and easier and is available at BWI Marshall Airport. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's Home to Gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. We're talking to Jordan Kahlo from BWI Airport. So, Jordan, you're at uh, Let's Make a Deal. There's door one, two, and three, international service growth, LCC growth, or new facilities and job growth. Which door do you go to? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess uh, I don't really look at it that way. Um, my job is really just to, to make the airport bigger to try and grow it as much as possible. Every little bit that we add to the activity at the airport impacts the local economy. So that creates jobs before we were talking about all the people that work at the airport. So the more flying and the more passengers there are, the more jobs that get created and the more money that flows into the local economy. So in terms of prioritizing though, what kind of service? I mean, we're really talking to everyone all the time. We put together strategic plans. I'm making air fingers or finger quotes that depend kind of on the demand we see from unserved markets. And we try and go down that list and hit the highest priority markets, the markets with the most demand first. But if someone from farther down the list says, hey, you know, we like your cost structure. We love the Washington market. We want to want to serve that area. I mean, the jetway is going to be open for them. International travel is always kind of has a higher allure. So we focus on that a little bit and international travelers spend more money when they come. Uh, so we focus on that a little bit. And our international facility has a lot of capacity, uh, but we set, certainly still talk to all kinds of domestic traps. I mean, we know there's a few domestic startups out there, so we're certainly in contact with them. Jordan, you have a real interesting geography at BWI Marshall. You know, obviously not a far drive south from Philly, not a particularly long drive north from Washington, D.C. proper. So how do you think about competition from Reagan National, Dulles, and Philly, all airports around you trying to attract service from all the same airlines? Yeah, we think Washington and Baltimore area is a, a good market and can sustain plenty of air service. So we don't really view it necessarily as a competition, just kind of getting what the people who live near us want. But if you look at where our traffic comes from at BWI Marshall, and we've looked at that with a few different data sets, it pretty much always comes out the same. About 40% of the passengers here come from the Baltimore metro area, and about 40% come from the DC metro area. I guess for those that don't know, BWI Marshall and Washington Dulles are both exactly the same distance from downtown DC. We have a train that goes to Union Station. We're actually the 13th busiest train station, and the Amtrak network is on BWI Marshall property. So we actually have a pretty good split of traffic between Baltimore and D.C. right now. So our name is very appropriate. We get about 15 percent of traffic comes from southern Pennsylvania or south central Pennsylvania as well. And those are the cities of Lancaster, York and Harrisburg. Uh, and then there's a few other stragglers out there that come from 
Delaware and places farther afield. So we're closer to those Pennsylvania markets than Philly is. Philly does, we don't actually get too many people from there and they don't get too many people from us. Uh, I think I know from doing international editions at Philadelphia for my US Airways day, they mostly leak to Newark, not down here to DC. I mean, within that framework of knowing where we are among the airports, I mean, DCA is certainly the most convenient airport for the highest percentage of the population, but DCA is not international and it's slot controlled, so it's closed to new entrants. Uh, so we really compete more with Dulles for getting new service, uh, especially from international carriers. Um, they're a Star Alliance hub at Dulles. Star Alliance fights for its territory very strongly. So we try and make sure other carriers know that. Uh, and our niche is we're the low fare, low cost airport. I mean, we even have rules here since we're state run that the concessions can't charge more for a hamburger than you would pay outside. Uh, and our parking rates are way lower. So a lot of people just like coming here because it's, it's easier to deal with and it's more cost effective. And that's from both the passenger side and the airline side. Okay, so you've just served me up a softball here. So you've been on both sides of this debate about passenger facility charges. What's your point of view about increasing? Yeah, well, I certainly had uh, one opinion when I was an airline guy. I mean, basic economics says that if you raise the price of a ticket, the demand is going to get lower, and so less people will travel. We're the low fare airport here, so one would think that a level increase would uh, affect us more. But since I've come to the airport, I've learned about the other side. I mean, everything we do to expand the airport or to maintain the airport even, which is very expensive, has to come from somewhere. We are a standalone entity, so we have to generate money to operate the airport and to build new facilities when we need to expand. So normally, as I mentioned before, when we do reconciliation, that revenue has to come from airlines using the airport. So the landing fees that all airports charge, our user fees, and those rates are set depending on how much activity there is versus what the costs are. So if uh, if you can lower the amount that the airlines have to contribute to pay for the operation of the airport, that makes the airlines happy. So one way to do that would be to pass that cost along to the passengers. So in some strange twist there, actually having a higher ticket price but a higher percentage of being a passenger facility charge means that we charge the airlines less to actually operate. So the CPE is lower. So then the airline can lower their fares. Did you see what I did there? Yes, I did. And it doesn't always mean the airlines will lower their fares, right? <laughs> okay, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously uh, there's a complicated analysis that factors both of those things in. But uh, here at BWI Airport, we are for increasing the PFCs. And we think that means the airlines will pay less to operate here. Well, I that think makes you... sense from your point of view, for sure. And it, if you've been a listener of the show, I'm sure you heard the episode with Christina Casotis from Pittsburgh, where we had a very spirited discussion about the PFC and the airline view and the airport view. But she went as far as to say that it was aspirationally a goal for Pittsburgh to make it free for airlines to fly into Pittsburgh by being creative, not only with the PFC, but in other ways they could do things. Do you think that that's possible at BWI Marshall? Well, Christina's great. She used to be a consultant for BWI Marshall here when she was at SH&E. Um, so we certainly have used her opinions to, to grow what's been happening here. It would be great, yeah, if we didn't have to charge airlines. I guess I wonder if that happens before or after they become zero emissions kind of <laughs> Yeah, it's very aspirational. I mean, Michael O'Leary used to say that an airport should be a shopping center with a landing strip. So, you know, make all your money from the, the people shopping at the concessions, not for being on the airline. I think I saw you write uh, in Forbes this week that he also said that they didn't want to charge the passengers. They just wanted to charge them or the add-on fees. So, you know, it'd be great if we could do all that. How do we do it? I guess, I don't know. Some airports have uh, access to other revenue streams that not every airport has. I mean, places like DFW have natural gas, which allows them to have a lot of extra revenue and keep their costs down. Other folks have access to real estate that other airports don't have. Some economic development organizations in certain regions are, are very aggressive in terms of trying to help the airport attract service. 
So there's lots of, I guess, potential ways out there, but uh, nothing very traditional. And I think uh, here at the state, we're going to be conservative in terms of how we reconcile the cost that we have to operate the airport with uh, what we get from the airlines. We're always looking to keep that down, and I think we do that in ways we can. Sure would be great one day if that cost went to zero. No question about it. Just don't know how we get there. <laughs> well, Jordan, before we let you go, anything else in the hopper for BWI in 2022 and beyond you want to tell us about? Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of things go on since the pandemic started that don't have to do with air service that have been great. Actually, one of them that does have to do with air service, we opened five new gates um, with awesome concessionaires and prototypical bathrooms. That's on the Southwest Concourse. We actually built those five new gates because we're taking five gates out to redo the Southwest baggage handling system. Right now, that's the bottleneck that keeps Southwest from expanding at BWI Marshall. So allowing them to handle more bags is, uh, is going to allow them to actually expand. But since those prototype bathrooms have received such great acclaim, we also have a new bathroom project that was approved for three of the other concourses uh, in the terminal. So that's going to be coming soon. We're building a new gas station near our rental car facility. Right now, folks have to kind of hunt around if they came to the airport without filling up. You mentioned before the Southwest Maintenance Facility that's going to open in a few years. That took a long time to negotiate with Southwest and to get them to build that facility. It's going to be the only one on the East Coast for Southwest, so that's great. And, of course, I'm going to keep working to uh, add new airlines to new destinations. So we hope to have some news on that every few months. It sounds like you're begging me to ask, but what is a prototypical bathroom? Oh, yeah, I kind of was. You're right. No, so we have the, the stalls in the bathroom are floor to ceiling, and there is plenty of space in them, so you can bring your roller bags in there. But BWI was actually in our garages. We were one of the first airports that had the red-green light so that you knew where you could drive to uh, to park. That system's so old, it has to be replaced soon, um, where other airports are just getting it. But just like the garage now, our bathrooms have red and green lights over the stalls to tell you what you can knock in So... Uh, the governor came to uh, kind of christen our new gates a few months back, and that was kind of what he noticed the best was uh, this awesome new bathrooms that we have. So we're excited to, uh, we're building 12 new bathrooms, I think, uh, $55 million. So if you do some uh, cost per flush there, there should be pretty nice, I think. What a great way to end the uh, talk here, Jordan. That's really funny. You know, what I thought when I first used um, your airport after moving back to DC from being at Spirit was I thought it was great that you have moving walkways in the garages, that you park in the garage and get on a moving walkway to the airport. That's fantastic. You're probably not unique in that, but I hadn't seen that before. Yeah, I don't see those very much. Uh, I'm lucky to have a good parking spot. I do drive through the employee lot to get to the the hourly garage and it was awfully chilly this morning i was feeling sorry for the tsa and southwest folks that park out there so we'll have to get them some uh, moving sidewalks too and maybe some prototypical bathrooms we have a doggy bathroom in the the hourly garage in addition to a couple that are in the terminal now so uh, they were on jeopardy so that's cool well before this interview ends in the crapper i think we better call it a day Yeah, no, I will say one cool thing that we just opened, if that's okay, is um, we've been debating it for a long time, but we just opened a medical center in the terminal, um, and it's a full-service kind of urgent care facility, but during the pandemic, it also does testing, both inbound and outbound, depending on where you're going or coming from, um, as well as all kinds of vaccines can be had there if you're going to a place that needs a vaccine. Of course, it's supporting the COVID stuff, but even if you're going to a place that requires other vaccines that you wouldn't normally have. So give that a plug. That's a great plug and it's a great service to customers too. Jordan, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being a listener of the show and have a great holiday for you, your family and BWI Airport. Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net 
the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The Archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Jordan Kahlo for taking our questions. Now we'll take yours and get to our fine or wine for the week. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Matt in Rochester, who wrote us about cargo revenue. Hi, Chris and Ben. Airlines make money through passenger ticket sales, but also air cargo. Do you have any thoughts about how much revenue from a typical mainline flight comes from selling seats versus moving cargo? How is it different on domestic flights, largely narrow bodies, versus international, often wide body? Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Well, domestic flights don't carry a lot of cargo, mostly because they're usually turning very fast, meaning from the time they get to the gate to when they start back up and start flying again, there's not a lot of time to load a lot of cargo. They might load some letters or some things like that, but it's not big business for the domestic commercial airspace. Plus, you've got UPS and FedEx flying their own airplanes with their kind of cargo around the U.S. So there's just not that much space. Also, the bigger cargo and a lot of the cargo is containerized, meaning they're loaded in containers and then loaded on a plane. And to be able to load a container on a narrow body airplane requires systems in the belly of that airplane that almost no domestic airline has because they're they're expensive to install and very heavy. So they would cause a lot of fuel burn on all the flights. So you don't see a lot of cargo on domestic flights. When I was CEO at Spirit and people would ask if we carry cargo, I said, we sure do. We just call it baggage. <laughs> and people and people would think that was kind of a snarky answer. But it's very different on the international flights. Wide bodies have a much greater capacity to carry cargo. Wide bodies tend to sit at their location longer, so there's time to load the cargo, and it tends to be a more important component of international flights, at least a lot of international flights flown with wide bodies than it is domestically. So internationally, you're going to see airlines that carry cargo reported in their ancillary revenue, but I'm guessing their baggage fees way outweigh their cargo carrying. Internationally, you'll often see it as a separate line of business, and uh, it's a much bigger thing for the international flights. Great question, though, Matt. And uh, if you're interested in working in the cargo side of the airline business, uh, they always need good people. And certainly that might be something that might be up your alley. I know I'm dating myself, but I recall, you know, 30 plus years ago when I started in the industry, I was working for A4A. There was almost a, a parallel trend line where the cargo revenue was pretty much the profits of many passenger carriers back back then before they really kind of got some traction on their pricing power and how they were operating. And that was really before you know FedEx and UPS moved in to pick up a lot of the mail contracts and other kinds of things that they do now in lieu of the uh, passenger carriers. But no, good question, Matt. And another question related to the lower half of the plane. It's Waylon from Cheeseville, Wisconsin. And yes, there is such a place. We actually looked it up. It's an unincorporated part of Farmington, Wisconsin. The question is, Mr. Rogers used to say that it's good to be curious about many things. I'm curious to know what kind of effect baggage handling services like ShipGo will have on the airline industry, and do they have a future in your industry? Or will they likely fail being just another way to lose your luggage? What do you think, Chris? <laughs> Does Waylon have a point here? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't uh, familiar with ShipGo. I took a look at their website, and you know, it was about $70 to ship a large ski bag from my home in Dallas to a hotel in Vail, Colorado. 
$65 each way for a golf bag from Chicago to the Sarasota Ritz-Carlton. I don't ski and I don't golf, but if I did, personally, I would pay that versus hauling my equipment or renting skis or renting golf clubs once I got on vacation. That would certainly be easier than adding to the mayhem of a travel experience with luggage and then lots of equipment. So you know, I thought their their prices were pretty reasonable. I don't know how many people have used it. I don't know how many people would use it for luggage who can pack that far ahead and plan that far ahead to ship their luggage ahead of time. Uh, that doesn't happen at the Chimes household. But if you knew you were going to have excess baggage, for example, instead of taking one extra bag of holiday gifts, do you send it ahead? It's certainly cheaper than than other ways to transport them. So I think there's a market there. I don't know how big. Um, I don't know how you get traction. I don't know how you get in front of people. Uh, so they're made aware of it. But I thought their prices were reasonable enough that it would certainly reduce the hassle factor. I had a different view on this, Chris. I agree with you that if you're sending golf bags, maybe to Myrtle Beach or skis out to Vail or something, it might make sense to use a service like this because it is expensive to carry those things on regular airlines and you're not quite sure if the handling is going to be as great as you would want for those expensive things. But for bags... I looked at ShipGo and found them quite expensive. I just put in that I wanted to fly from Washington to Boston because my brother lives in Boston and I go see him sometimes. And I said, well, what if I ship my bag ahead on ShipGo? And to carry a checked bag is $65 on ShipGo. And even with airlines that charge for bags, I don't know that any that charge $65 to check the bag. And if you want to carry sort of two bags, which is when you might think maybe I'll ship these because I don't want to ship two, it's $130 to ship two bags. And I just can't imagine that at that pricing, they're going to get much traction for carrying luggage. So maybe for higher value things like golf and skis, Maybe it makes some sense if they have special handling and give you better comfort that things aren't going to break or get damaged. But just in terms of luggage, it seems to me you can carry it to the airport and let the airline check it in for you for a lot less than they charge. So you really have to not want to roll these bags up to the ticket counter or wait around at baggage claim for them to come out to pay, you know, $130 for two pieces of luggage. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I again, I'm thinking more about the hassle factor. And if we're going on a, a big vacation and I know we're going to have two or three extra bags, do I want to be dealing with them at the airport versus just having them waiting at the hotel or the vacation home at the beach or whatever it is? Is it worth that hassle factor? I mean, you, you plop down uh, all kinds of things expenses in a travel experience. And if it's two less bags you have to haul around, thinking back to those days when I had to like move port cribs and lots of baby gear, you know, would it be worth it to ship it ahead? Maybe so. You know, and the other thing, and I'm not trying to be really down on ShipGo, but I hadn't known of them until Waylon pointed them out either, actually. The other thing is that if you're that forward thinking, and saying, I'll ship things ahead of time so that I don't have to carry them. My guess is you can just get, you know, a cardboard box and throw lots of clothes in there and ship it exactly to the house you're going to go visit, not the airport you're going to land at, <laughs> right? Probably for less than ship goes going to do to take your luggage. I, know, but I, thought, I thought they were door-to-door. That's That was the thing. I thought they, I looked at it as door-to-door service. So. Oh, well, maybe it is door-to-door and maybe that's one of the reasons it is so expensive. So maybe, maybe I'm not just not the customer for this product because, you know, we don't, check a lot of bags when we travel. But I imagine for big families, maybe this is a solution. But the more important thing here, Chris, is that you and I collectively have worked like, you know, 80 years in the airlines, right? That's not even in dog years, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And neither you or I had heard about ShipGo. So if we hadn't heard about ShipGo, how are customers hearing about ShipGo? 
Right. And that's probably the biggest reason I'm dubious of them. I think they need to get in front of travel agents and have travel advisors being advising their their clients of this uh, way to make the experience easier. Yeah, I think that's right. And for the $70 a bag, the, the travel agent should get some of that money to make that work. <laughs> well, Chris, I'm going to let you take this finer wine so I can stay impartial. But I'll be interested in what you have to say. The writer asks that he remain anonymous. So for our purposes, we'll just call him Tom Hanks. Hi, Ben and Chris. I'm a longtime airline geek, and I've been enjoying Airlines Confidential with my 10-year-old son as we drive to an after-school class on Fridays. Particularly enjoyed the recent David Nealman interview. I got to discuss with him how hard it is to start a new airline. And we both especially enjoy the finer wine segment as they are nearly always wines. And I agree the writer is often omitting some info. But I find myself in the finer wine position today and I'd love to hear what you think. I've never flown Spirit before, but after hearing you talk, I booked myself and two kids to fly Spirit from Detroit to Los Angeles on January 1st. I picked three big front seats together 2C, 2D, and 2F for my two children and I. These cost an additional $357, and I received an email confirming the seat assignments. Today, I received a phone call that due to a spirit error, they have now assigned 2C to someone else, and I will be not seated next to my children anymore. They also told me that I should ask the person in 2C to move after I board the flight, but otherwise there is nothing they can do. There is no equipment change or any other change in the flight. Finer wine. Tom, thanks for the question and the finer wine uh, inquiry. And I know we've got Spirit Airlines folks listening here, so I'm going to be a little frank, but this is a complete fine. Uh, Tom has every reason to be upset. I don't accept the fact that when an airline makes a mistake, they say there's nothing that they can do. So if there's validity to this finer wine and the facts are correct, I think this this uh, passenger has every right to be unhappy and uh, hopefully somebody can fix it for him, although he doesn't want his name used, so I don't know how he can get it fixed. But if someone from Spirit wants to contact us, maybe we'll put them in touch. Well, Chris, I agree with you. And here's what really gets me about this. The way he wrote this is he said they have now assigned 2C to someone else, meaning that he thinks he had bought these seats before Spirit then assigned 2C to someone else. Yep. So while he was told there's nothing they can do, they did do something. They called Tom and said, you can't sit there. They could have just as easily called the other person and said, you can't sit there. That's what they could have done. He's got his receipt. He's got the confirmation. So that's I, right. I, I hope at a minimum they refunded the the fee. I, I think they should refund the fee for all three of the seats and let let them have two of them. But uh, that's that's my two cents here. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They they made a positive decision, right? They said we're going to call someone and tell them they can't sit in two C. They just called the wrong person because they called <laughs> the one that was attached to two other seats. Okay, spirit. Spirit Airlines folks, do you hear us? Don't do this again. So sorry to be so rude about it. But when I read this, I was like, this is this is why people scream at airlines. Well, Chris, for my shout out this week, my shout out goes to Etihad Airlines, who have launched their first what they call green loyalty program. They've launched a new program that they call Conscious Choices. And what it does is that they've related it to their broader efforts of lowering their carbon emissions by uh, a certain amount over the next decades. And what they're doing is they're saying, if you as customers behave in ways that lower your personal effect on the environment, we'll give you Etihad loyalty points for that. So if you carry fewer bags, they will give you more loyalty points, for example, and things like that. I think it's a very creative way for Etihad to say it's not just the airlines problem, but it's the airlines and their passengers. So let's work together and reward good behavior everywhere. Good idea, Etihad. I, I like that. Maybe 
some extra points for not reclining your seat in back of your in back of your neighbor too. So my shout out is related to Doug Parker's retirement, but it's not about Doug Parker. Uh, it's a shout out to Gary Kelly and his musical tribute to Doug, who was honored at the Wings Club uh, this month in New York. If you haven't seen it, please search for it. It's all over social media. It's playing a lot on various LinkedIn uh, pages as people share it. It's Gary Kelly and the Why Nots. It's it's a good chuckle, and it shows the camaraderie of these two airlines and these two executives. And they do have a life, and they like to have fun, and uh, that's always a good thing. I thought that was fantastic and great job. That's a fantastic shout out, Chris. Great job, Gary Kelly. With that, we're going to wind this up until next week. Uh, Have a good one and thanks for listening. See you next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.